Hi, this is Father Andrew, and this is the All Souls Catechesis Podcast. This year, our theme is Signs of Life, Reflections on Hope, and we're hearing from members of our community about where they found hope this last year. And today we have with us Mark Clemens. Um, Mark, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, hi, well, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here, first of all. So um, my name is Mark. I've been going to All Souls for about five years now, and I'm... Uh, Unlike a lot of members of our congregation, I have no advanced degrees. I have no theological, hmm. pastoral, uh, biblical studies training. So um, take everything that I say with a very large dose of salt, I guess. <laughs> this feels like the soft sell that you do before you sort of hit us with all kinds of with all kinds of brilliance. Oh, I really wish I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll get into. I'm sure all kinds of stuff will come up as we go. But Mark. Yep. Where- Hope this year that's our theme well yeah when you uh when you sat the prompt at kind of the start of this uh, podcast series i didn't want to respond to it because i feel like i really haven't found hope in many places <laughs> um i've i don't know i feel like i've just been thinking a lot about despair over the last like year um not not everywhere yeah, right you know like right. I, I mean i found found great comfort and great hope in like such meetings as we're able to have with the, with the church community, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the actions of, of individuals and, and groups, but just in general, I feel like I've been confronting, um, yeah, how to put it like, I haven't found any hope in like institutional responses to, uh, the coronavirus to, police brutality to uh yeah. you know the, you you name it right i just feel like all the people that were supposed to help have not helped and i think the thing that was like really the cherry on top was how in like you know you probably remember in like march or april of last year like almost instantly there was this pivot where like every tv commercial was all just like pictures of like smiling faces and it was like <laughs> we're gonna get through this yeah. we're all in this together and it would be like a like a grandmother and her grandchildren, like having a Coke over zoom or something, you know, and it would be like, you know, togetherness brought to you by Coke or something, you know, it's just like, Oh, I hate this so much. I hate that. We just kind of instantly pivoted to this, like just empty reassurance without any, like, we'll get through what? like, what does it mean to be together? You know, like you haven't thought about this at all. (laughs) We just got to do it together all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It it was, just slogans it was the it was the workplace motivational poster mm-hmm. as as sort of civic life like we're all just gonna have a picture of people rowing a boat together at a sunrise <laughs> and like we can do it yeah that's right we're all we're all now the the kitten like on the branch and we're hanging in there <laughs> hang in there uh, yeah <laughs> so like i guess i guess one thing that seems hopeful to me is like whenever uh someone would sort of let slip a more kind of honest assessment of, <laughs> of where we're at and like what we're feeling and uh, you know, like institutional failures or whatever. Um, so I was kind of noodling about that and thinking, well, um, maybe that would be the best thing to do is like to try to take stock of our ultimate condition and assess mm-hmm. that as like honestly as possible and see if um you know, if you go way, way 
down into the despair, maybe, uh, maybe you can come to a truer understanding of, of hope on the other side of it. I guess that's maybe the, the Kierkegaard move. So it's the gamble that like, if there is such a thing as hope, I should be able to find it. If, if I really submerge myself into the darkness, if hope exists, I'll have to be able to find it there. Is that the, is that the gamble? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Cause just like, uh, shrugging it off and saying like, well, you know, there's, um, I just need to, you know, be cheerful or be hopeful <laughs> like that. That just felt like a lie. So, um, so let's try for something different than that. Yeah. Um, you know, right. If, if the truth will set us free, then, um, we should try to be truthful, I guess. Uh, yeah. So with all that, I, I, um, I, I bring to you this idea of, of hope and original sin and we'll see. We'll see if we can uh, make the two go together in some way. Yeah, listeners, jo- join us for this gamble and see if we come out on the other <laughs> side. Yeah. Um, so I guess, um, again, I'm, I don't have a theological background, but maybe it's, uh, it's, it's worth starting with a, a definition, um, mm-hmm. not because I think the, uh, the wise and learned listeners of this podcast like need me to define original sin for them, but uh, you should at least hear me give my definition so that you know whether or not to, to write me off right away. You, know, you can you know, hopefully uh, tell that I sort of know what I'm talking about a little bit. Um, so when, when I say original sin, just to be clear, I'm not talking about the sin that Adam and Eve commit in Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about this kind of human nature, like innate tendency towards sin, um, what or what Francis Spufford memorably calls the human propensity to mess things up. Um, yes. He doesn't say mess. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, but what, what th- those things are maybe factors of original sin, but what I'm really talking about is uh, our kind of participation in that first sin of Adam and Eve. The fact that, uh, you know, our nature is corrupted because of that um, or what Herbert McCabe says, uh, it's a distortion of our world, which leads us away from God. Um, it is, yeah, our, it is this metaphysical truth that somehow we too have committed uh, that same sin as Adam and Eve and that we stand guilty of it. Um, and here's the really hard part. The part that's really uh, difficult for us to take is that not only do we bear the the consequences of that sin death Mm -hmm. um you know it's not like uh like somebody put a curse on the family and now we're Mm -hmm. uh you know we're we're um we're stuck with the consequences of our ancestors actions but that we in fact are guilty of that sin in some cosmic way right um and that the really crazy part is that we're guilty of it from the time we're born before we actually you know do any sins of our own Mm -hmm. um we somehow stand guilty of this um Right. You know, we kick off Lent by chanting Psalm 51 together, uh, you know, and you, right. David says, behold, I was shaped in, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin, my mother did conceive me. Um, you know, and we know that from the rest of the Psalm, David's not just like trying to put the blame on his parents. Like, you know, right. he, he deeply feels his own sin yeah. um, and owns it, but also he recognizes like there's, um, this is not just me. There's something else kind of behind this. That's, um, 
that was part of me before I was even born. Um, yeah. Right. And, you know, we also know he says the only cure for that is, is a clean heart, which God has to give him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is a hard teaching, right? Right. <laughs> no one likes like, we, we have such a deep seated belief in like individual meritocracy that, yeah. that any idea that like, I am, we, we have to like, allegorize what david is saying there like he can't possibly mean that he we we can't we can't have participated in that we sort of we want to reject that wholeheartedly but there is something to and biblically there's something to like you know paul in romans 5 doing the like you know Mm -hmm. all sinned in adam but all are alive in christ that this idea that there is a not just yeah not just an inherited thing like you know sucks to be human because you got the family family genes of sinfulness but there is some sort of culpability participatoriness in all of this um but yeah and we, we, just, we just don't like to hear that yeah and i think it's like uh you know whenever people want to like bash christianity you know like high school atheists or whatever right. or uh, you know or more mature atheists you know like original sin is like a really easy thing to reach for you know that they will say like oh it's this like you know, that's the source of all this like guilt and shame that you mm-hmm. just need to like let go of. And, you know, like you would just realize that, you know, um, you know, that you're fine just the way you are or whatever, you know, you don't need to right. go around carrying all this guilt, um, you know, that the mean old church has settled you with. Right. Um, or sometimes, you know, you even get the more sophisticated version of that where people are like, oh, Jesus never taught this. It was that Paul, you know, right. <laughs> and messed everything up, you know, Um you know, or they blame it on Augustine or Calvin or some, somebody yeah. else, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, somewhere down the line, the teaching got corrupted. Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> I just um, like, like, yeah. again, like Jesus was, Jesus was Mr. Rogers and like everybody afterwards <laughs> just took Mr. Rogers and made him, made him mean, uh, like as if, again, just this last week, Jesus is flipping over tables and making whips and it's, <laughs> But then they have to reapportion that to like, oh, but that was only to the hypocrites. He loved everybody else and never, never said anything harsh, never, never had hard teachings. He was just always just chill all the time. Um, and look, I, I'm an Enneagram nine. I identify with, with like, oh yeah, don't rock the boat, Jesus. Like, I, I get it, but yeah, sorry. That's a, that's a do. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. I, I, uh, I definitely prefer to spend my time in the gospels rather than yeah. <laughs> epistles and definitely with the, with like the nice teachings, you know, I, I like the beatitudes. I don't like the, the, the woe to you. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Luke's beatitudes that are just like, woe to you. Like, no, <laughs> woe to you rich. Like, sorry, rich people. You had it now. You're not going to have it later. And Luke just doesn't give us any, any, any sort of help on that. So yeah, the Bible's got yeah. rough edges on this. It's got some, it's got some hard teachings. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think maybe the best way to approach original sin here is rather than try to come up with some kind of like a straightforward defense of it, because mm-hmm. um, I'm not really equipped to do that. Uh, what I maybe want to start by doing is kind of look at the alternatives that people you know, who started off inside the church anyway, right. uh, proposed and kind of try to pick them apart a little and see, all right, well, what's, what's wrong with these other ways of thinking about it? How do they lead us into, into despair, into difficulties? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then uh then maybe try to look at at the thing itself and see see what we can make of it yeah um yeah so this this is the i guess the academic portion of the the podcast here <laughs> right so um when people talk about original sin they're usually um or the theology of original sin they'll usually contrast um saint augustine's vision of original sin which is hopefully roughly what i just defined mm-hmm. um and i i think he actually coined the phrase original sin too or the the latin equivalent i mean i gotta double check that that could certainly be right um, but anyway they'll they'll contrast it to this to this thing called pelagianism um which is uh pelagius was a uh a british christian um so i was early anglican yeah i know I was, I was talking to a, an anglican priest friend of mine who, who's uh not, not at all souls um about doing this and he was like yeah you gotta you gotta remind them that pelagius was a brit and that's like the <laughs> this is like the chief or like the original heresy of the church of england you gotta be careful um yeah so he was a a, a british christian uh people sometimes call him a monk, but as far as we can tell, he was actually just a layman. Um, he just lived a very ascetic, uh, strict life. Um, he wound up in Rome and then later in Palestine. And um, it's not totally clear everything that he taught, mostly because we don't have any writings of his. If there were any, they got destroyed because he was a heretic. Um, what we have is kind of preserved through Augustine and Jerome and some other people writing about him to argue with him. So, you know, there's maybe a little distortion going on there. Um, he also kind of equivocated about what he believed himself because he was on ecclesiastical trial a lot and fearing for his life. So he, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll that'll do. <laughs> Being put at the you know put up for trial for heresy will usually uh, give you an opportunity to <laughs> to, to low grade recant some of your views. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so you find him kind of equivocating or maybe even just sort of outright like lying about what it was that he actually taught and believed. Um, but anyway, as, as kind of best as we can tell, um, Pelagius was teaching that, uh, you know, contrary to original sin, you actually can follow all of the commandments of God that you, that perfection is sort of within, uh, our capabilities right here and now as, as mm-hmm. people, um, you know, so like the, the Pelagians love to throw around versus like, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments or, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right. They right, took those right. super literally. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and they took them like seriously too, you know, they um, understanding that, this is not an easy thing to do. Um, Peter Brown has a line that like Pelagius wanted every Christian to be a monk, right? Like the, hmm. the goal was kind of like totally renouncing your wealth, totally receding from the world um, so that you could pursue perfection. Um, or that at least is, is kind of the original, though, like that's a Pelagianism 1.0. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's maybe a different version that crops up later on, but um, so there's a lot of consequences to this view, right? At first it seems to us really optimistic, you know, like, Hey, we actually can be perfect. You know, um, we don't, we, right. Like God has given us everything that we need to succeed right now. Um, in, uh, prepping for this, I, I read, uh, 
a book on original sin by our catechist emeritus, Alan Jacobs, um, which is just called original sin, a cultural history. It's really good. Um, and he, he kind of, uh, tongue in cheek compares Pelagius to like Tony Robbins or a motivational speaker <laughs> saying like, well, you can do it. You know? It sounds just like what we tell children. You can be anything you want to be. If you just yes. work hard and do it. <laughs> and if you want to be holy, you can do it. Just set your mind to it and you can do anything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, well, you know, as millennials, you and I know what it was like to grow up with that right. and, and, you know, how like riddled with self-doubt we are as, as adults, <laughs> you know, and because that's really like the the insidious like flip side of, of that teaching, right? Is like, well, mm-hmm. okay, if I can be like Jesus and I look at my life and I'm not like Jesus, well, right. whose fault is that? Right. Looks like it's all on me. Yeah. Um you know, and then, you know, so there's, there's this self doubt that comes into it. And like, you know, should you actually manage to convince yourself that you're on the way? Um, well, then, then you have a lot of contempt for weakness, right? You know, we kind of turn yeah. in, yeah. Um, we turn into the Pharisee in that parable who says, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector mm-hmm. over there. Right. That's, there's a whole, there's a whole like work hard culture that mm-hmm. full of like, I see it among a lot of like entrepreneurial types and you see these motivational videos. Um, this one guy, I don't even remember, fully remember his name, but I've seen him, friends posted him a lot. And he's sort of like, like if you're not chomping at the bit to work at, to work on Monday, like sort of what's wrong with you? Like you're in the wrong place. You need to find a thing that you're just like, basically you're sad all weekend because you're not working because you just <laughs> love what you do and you just want to hit the ground running all the time. Um, it's, it's notable that like, I, I, I never hear about those speakers like volunteering or, or like in a community of friends that require self-giving <laughs> or anything like that. But it's right. Like it is that, and it, it, it is appealing. Um, it is that sort of like, you can do this. Like if you just apply yourself, um, but yeah, you start to look down on, I, I thought of this because what you just said about contempt for weakness, right? Yeah. There is this like, if you're not doing this, if you're not like work hard all day, loving the work you do, like, like you've messed up somehow. We live in America. You can pursue your dreams. You have settled for something less than. Yeah, totally. It, it, it does seem like a really kind of um, American sounding uh, mm-hmm. heresy here. Um, yeah, I mean, especially the way we, um, not just the way we worship like our work and yeah, and, and like celebrate that kind of workaholic nature, mm-hmm. like you're saying. Um, yeah, and what, what's funny about those kind of people too um, is like even when they have the family and kids or, you know, like, volunteer or whatever um you know it's always there's always something like kind of slightly creepy about the way they talk about it you know i mean it's it's those things are like yet another rung that they have to sort of like yeah on the on the ladder to success right um i mean you remember when like mark zuckerberg did his like listening tour around the country a couple years ago and like Mm -hmm. you know uh you know there were pictures of him like you know, eating a burger in a diner with like normal Americans or whatever. And it just looked so weird and creepy. <laughs> and so like you, 
I don't know. For me, I was just looking at him like, all right, what's your angle, buddy? Like, what are you yeah. looking to get out of this? Right. He's actually just planting microphones under all the tables so he can collect better metadata on, <laughs> on rural America. Um, yeah. And it's in some ways that the family piece is, is like a reimagination of a very old thing, which is all about family, all about status by family. Like, mm like hundreds thousands of years ago the idea was like i'll have my clan and i'll have you have lots of kids partially because that becomes your legacy that becomes your status that becomes um i don't know like again the that same kind of i will work hard and i will do all these things and i will i will earn my way up the ladder i guess yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very like Darwinian almost, right? That, you know, survival of the fittest and like, all I have to do is, you know, if I can prove myself the fittest, I will yeah. survive. Um, yeah. And it also like, then the logic works the other way too, where if you say like, well, if I have success, if I have good things, if I'm, you know, rich and successful or whatever, well, that must mean I earned it, right? That yeah. must mean I deserve it. Um and therefore, you people who don't have those things, well, you just didn't work hard enough. Right. And and here we worship like a a single childless guy who was whose victory was dying um, <laughs> in shame. Um, I still love uh, my, one of my favorite things when you do a degree in, in church history, you just learn all these like weird little nuggets that aren't like helpful paradigms. They're just like fun facts. And one yeah. of them is... Um, you can, if you like do a Google image search for Alexander worships his God, like the earliest, I think one of the earliest oh, yeah, I Christian love art is actually graffiti of like someone making fun of his neighbor. Um, I remember uh, Dr. Kalansis at Wheaton College pointing out that um, Christos and the word Crestus, which, I, which means like useful, which is what you'd call your donkey. Um, like since they sound similar, there's this little like sort of terrible graffiti drawing of like a guy kneeling at at a cross and the person on the cross has a donkey's head and it says alexander worships his god so it's someone just like dunking on their christian neighbor for for like worshiping this stupid this stupid guy who died um and i i just th there's something about that that's like a that's my fun fact that's a now now you podcast listener can bring that up at your next <laughs> at your next socially distanced cocktail party and you can say hey here's a fun thing i learned about christian history um but yeah, that that worthlessness. How does how does Pelagianism become popular in a in a religion that that pursues this like I don't know that this upside down way of viewing the, the world where like the last shall be first. Man, that's a really good question. I mean, I think part of it is that it appeals to our pride. Mm-hmm right? It gives you an out, you know, I mean, we, we talk a good game about like submitting to God and like, you know, uh, right. You know, uh, um, you know, laying down your life for your friends and all those, mm -hmm. all those gospel precepts. But like at the end of the day, like, you know, deep down, we still really think we could probably do it just fine ourselves, if not better, you know, and yeah. like, and Pelagianism kind of gives you a way out there, especially, you know, when you look at some of those verses that it likes to pull out, you know, it's even saying like, see, look, Jesus said you can be perfect. You yeah. should be, you know? Um, 
Yeah, and it also, um, I don't know, it gives you the sense of of moving in like a grand trajectory too, instead of just like constantly kind of fumbling in the dark and messing up and having to yeah. start over again. You know? Yeah. It's the, the, uh, that, that quote that I, I, I read in, in my sermon this last week, which I, I ran into last week where Liz Brunig talks about the most appealing characters in literature are the ones who, mm. who like fail. And she brings up that um, Shusaku Endo's Kichijiro from his novel silence, like, repents just one more time than he apostatizes and that that's a really appealing thing for some reason i mean partially because i i love that novel and i really love the character of kichijiro as this like cowardly guy who just keeps trying and keeps failing but keeps on yeah. keeps on you know repenting there's something so moving about like yeah that's that's us that's the guy who who like <laughs> doesn't advance um but obviously that that's a different this response to Pelagianism is a different kind of despair as well. Like I can't accomplish anything. So I guess I'll just be stagnant and dwell in my sin forever. Um, yeah. Like it, you can Pelagianism's taking something, something that is good, which is like growing in virtue and, and turning it into a, I don't know, an idol. It's, it's a caricature of, of what growing in virtue actually looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, and it also like, although weirdly, when you really start thinking about it, like they're actually, there's much more room for virtue and for the idea of spiritual growth in the Orthodox model of original sin. Like, for Pelagius, like, you know, everything is down to your choice. And like, even if you have, you know, and, and it's a choice that you have to make every moment to be perfect. So like, even if you've been perfect up to this point, you know, mm -hmm. all you have to do is one wrong thing. And that totally screws it up. You know, there's no, um, there's no room for, uh, for like, grace that allows mm -hmm. us to grow uh you know and develop virtues and the fruits of the spirit like it's all you know it's all or nothing constantly mm, yeah is it i mean it's it's sort of like it, it ends up being sort of a functionally deist or at least the idea that like god's not actively involved in what you're doing mm. Maybe it's sort of like the, the options are available for you if you if you take it i, I might be reading this through an entirely like american merit-based <laughs> lens but that idea that yeah. like you can always take it if you're willing to reach out and grab it um but god's not taking the first active step in this in this model god's not having to reach in and do this it's like god is waiting for you um i mean it's it's ben franklin god helps those who help <laughs> themselves right yeah yeah i think i mean i don't yeah that that's a I don't know exactly what like, I don't know, a, a fifth century Pelagian would have said about that. Right. Um, or like wh who Jesus is in that model. You know, mm -hmm. I would suspect they would say maybe something like, well, he's a good example, mm -hmm. you know, right. He, he's the benchmark, but yeah, like what kind of, what kind of help can God give you if you already have all the like inner resources that you need, you know, like you've kind of been, 
set up for success, I guess, as best as, as you can be. Um, and the rest is up to you. Yeah. And you could claim that sort of God, anything you do is sort of God's ongoing provenient grace. God's always offering it. But, but the point is it, it, God is then like a static, God is like gravity in that sense. Like that, it is a constant that you can count on, but it's never fluctuating. It's never changed. It's just sort of a constant feed that you're able to tap into, but that depersonalizes God into just, again, like this, this ongoing, the light is shining from the sun at all times and you can just choose to do it or not. But it is, it is this static thing. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a really good image. I like that. Yeah. That's, uh, it's totally not a relationship mm -hmm. you're describing in any sense. Um, and it's actually, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine how love enters into that picture either. You know, like the sun doesn't love us. We don't right. love it either. <laughs> yeah. Um, geez, that's really good. I wish I thought of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, I don't want to say anything else about that aspect of it. Um, no, that's, I don't know. That's probably good. Um, I kind of, in, in thinking about this, I mentally, I referred to uh, hard Pelagianism and soft Pelagianism. So like hard would be that kind of teachings that we were just talking about that like, well, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to make yourself a monk and like, you know, beat your body and make it your slave and make yourself perfect. Right. Um, you know, that it's, it's a difficult thing, but it's worth doing. Yeah. Um, and then there's, there's this kind of soft Pelagianism that, um, that I'm sure if I dug more into church history, I'd see it all over the place, but I found it mostly cropping up like after the reformation, um, in, um, so like some of the examples that I found from uh, that Alan Jacobs pointed me to are in like 17th century England. So we're looking at mm -hmm. like just a hundred years after the reformation, like things I am, um, I'm going to say nice things about Protestants later so I can, yeah. I can bash a little bit right now. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable how quickly things go off the rails and like yeah. <laughs> how quickly like heretical teaching starts cropping up um, under the guise of like, well, we don't have to listen to the Pope anymore. So like, <laughs> I've got an idea. Yeah. That's a, Again, fun fact from church history, like almost immediately the peasants all revolt in Germany because they take they take like uh, like after Luther, almost immediately there's a peasants revolt. Yeah, that's Luther right. has to sign with the side with the kings to be like, no, no, not not that kind of freedom, <laughs> um, which I don't know. Maybe nowadays we'd look back and, and be like, yeah, peasants revolt against the king. Um, but but yeah, very, very quickly, there's a good argument to be made that Luther died in despair that he had mm. started this movement that basically like ran off the rails. Um, so tell us more ways that the, the, the information <laughs> ran off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, um, sorry, I'm going to totally sidetrack here for a minute, but just right. the, the other story I like about Luther is like him uh, listening to Zwingli mm -hmm. preach and him like carving on the table or the chair that he was sitting at like this is my body you know like this this really literal <laughs> interpretation of the eucharist that zwingli was like totally you know railing against that is that's excellent and i can <laughs> having been what there was once in college i was in a sort of normal classroom debate that college 
particularly college young men seem to have mm, um, that yeah. are are overly passionate overly passionate given the subject matter and i have like i was like angrily writing notes in my paper um like uh, as this person was saying things and i was so angry at them and and now at, at the ripe age that i'm at I, I look back on my youthful folly but uh, you were channeling the lutheran spirit that's right there we go <laughs> um but yeah so you know by the time we get to like the 17th century so you know 1600s in england you know there's a there's a civil war going on um about religion mm-hmm. in in part anyway um you know they've they've killed the catholic king um the puritans are in charge right um and kind of out of that comes all of this this whole interesting flowering of all sorts of uh the, the more like uh radical what maybe we call liberal protestantisms now mm. um you know, so you have the Quakers starting up, um, and they called themselves the Society of Friends at first. The Quakers was like a rude nickname that people gave them. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so they they they're saying things like, oh, you know, original sin is a uh, a product of religious melancholy. You know, basically, like you know, you're you're depressed if you think that way. You know, kind of a uh, um uh what's the word like pathologizing it is maybe the yeah. word that we use now. You know. Um, you know, and you, you just need to listen to the inner light instead, you know, God will tell you what to do. Um, if you listen, uh, and then kind of on their, on the opposite extreme in England, you have the, uh, you know, certain representatives of like the official state church, the, the church of England. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's this group of, uh, or this movement of, uh, what's kind of hilariously called latitudinarianism, uh, where uh you know you have um clergy saying stuff like oh you know the or they're commending the reasonableness of the gospel precepts you know we can everything that jesus tells us to do is perfectly reasonable if something sounds unreasonable or difficult well you've just misunderstood it right Right. um and so you get you get people um like this uh this one guy uh named edward fowler who is a, a an Episcopal or an Anglican priest in the church of England and kind of just seemed like a total toady of, of whoever was in charge at the time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he says things like Christian Liberty means that, well, you know, you're free to practice whatever the customs of the society you happen to find yourself in are, you know, that's Jesus sets us free to, uh, you know, to go with the flow. Yeah. Don't be, don't be a nerd. Just do what everyone says. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, you know, but like the and the the common thread between those two um approaches is kind of just that, you know, well, you're not that bad to start with, you know. Let's hmm. you know whether or not these um you know, a 17th century uh Church of England priest or a Quaker would admit to original sin. You know, there's this kind of sense that they soft pedal it, you know, and mm-hmm. saying, look, you know, you're, you're not really that bad. You know, you have you have the power to, um, you know, you, like you're basically a good person. You know, yeah. the things that Jesus asked you to do are totally doable, you know, and uh, and, you know, and I can show you how uh, to get around some of the more inconvenient teachings <laughs> right. if you want. Right. Um, uh, John Bunyan, who, the uh, the great like uh, Puritan author who is also living in the middle of the 16th century. Um, he, he kind of mercilessly mocks this tendency in Pilgrim's progress. Um, so he, uh, 
he kind of parodies the latitudinarian as the character of ignorance in that book who, um, you know, if you've read it, you know, that, uh, the protagonist Christian, who is uh, standing for you and me on our journey to the heavenly right. city, um, you know, Christian encounters ignorance and asks, you know, why, why do you think you should get into the heavenly city? And ignorance says, well, I know my Lord's will and I've been a good liver. I pay every man his own. I pray fast, pay tithes and give alms. And I've left my country for where I'm going. Um, and Christian starts to kind of interrogate ignorance a little bit and say, well, hang on, how do you know that you're such a good liver? Um, you know, he, he quotes Proverbs and says, he that trusts his own heart is a fool. And ignorance just says, oh, this is spoken of an evil heart, but mine is a good one. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I do love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're bad, that's what happens. But I'm not bad. Yeah, I mean, th this is sort of the other side of the American uh, Pelagianism, I think, is that kind of just Pollyannishness, like uh, that relentless, op cheerful optimism um, that sort of refuses to believe that, you know, I could really do anything that was that bad, that was that, uh, you know, irrevocable, that was that difficult to overcome, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I guess I should be, um, to, to be fair to the, to the poor folks over in the, in Protestant England, this is also, you know, the Catholics around the same time were also teaching uh, similar things. So you get like, uh, let me find it, you know, um, you know, so you have Jesuits in France um, teaching stuff that like, well, okay, the church does say that rich Christians need to give from their, their wealth to the poor, but they only have to give their superfluous wealth <laughs> and what, you know, you and I, the rich and powerful, uh, those of us in high society, well, what we retain to improve our status and to improve the status of our relatives and to provide for our children, you know, and their future, well, none of that is superfluous, you know? No. So really, we don't have to give very much away at all, right? You know, and, and that kind of endless, uh, you know, subverting and uh, modifying and downplaying of the, the strict commands of the gospel is is endemic to the, to this time. So I, uh, I don't mean to shed unfair blame. Yeah. On, on the it's, Protestant. it's funny. Cause that's, it's the opposite problem of what Jesus, like at one point in the gospels, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. Cause they basically say, look, whatever you give to the, to the temple is okay. And so you don't need to, I forget the word, but basically you don't need to take care of your parents because you're giving it to the temple and that's okay. And he's like, well, that's terrible, but this is the opposite problem. It's like, well, if I'm giving it to my family and if I'm, you know, enriching my children's station and doing all of that, you know, this is good. And, and I, I should do this. Um, it, it is amazing though, what a, that has, is an exactly contemporary parallel, right? Like all oh, the yeah. money, all the money that, suburban parents spend on their kids is always like well i have to spend this money this is what i need to spend my money on um these extra things they need are i'm doing it for my kids um and it's it's hard my solution to that is just to be cheap but that's not <laughs> that's not the right answer to that either um but yeah i mean how easy is it to be like well this is generous right like i'm doing this i'm doing this for good reasons to kind of help these things that's a that's a weird slippery slope that I, yeah, it, it is off. right. Because, yeah. Um, and, and it comes from a place of love, right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or at least it seems to, you know, maybe if we, if we start poking around in there, you know, we'll find that there's maybe a lot more pride than we'd like to admit, Yeah, you know, a lot more fear. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but there's certainly love mixed in there with it. Um, right. Yeah. So it it does get really tricky. Um, I think another aspect of this, of that kind of, well, you know, I'm, I'm basically good and original sin, you know, if, if it amounts to anything at all, is just kind of a little, you know, it's a stumbling block. It's something mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, that I can, I can climb around pretty easily. Um, what I think that also starts to do is set up this really strong line between me, who's basically good and those people over there who are really bad, you know, mm-hmm. right. Like if you're, you know, a, mo- most people are good and the bad people are, like Hitler, you know, right. right? You know, people who are like really, really bad, you know, maybe those people God will punish, but like most of us, you know, he'll, he'll give us a pass. Right. Yeah. Um, and so just as the like kind of harder version of Pelagianism, you start looking down at those who haven't managed to make themselves perfect, you know, um, you kind of find yourself looking down at those people who seem really bad, Mm -hmm. you know, um, this is a constant stumbling block when uh, we talk about prison reform because a yeah. lot of people say, well, who cares about those who are in prison? Because, you know, like those people did bad stuff. They should be punished. And like, I don't, re- I'm not really concerned whether they're being treated well or not. Right. <laughs> right. Who, who cares about the bad people because they're bad and, and I would never do anything that gets me into prison. So I like, you have to be really bad to end up in jail. So you know, they, they must be, they must be awful. So yeah. Why would I, who cares if they have decent lives or, or if they get, I was actually pleased to see that Illinois has inmates in pretty high up in their, in their tiers for COVID vaccines. Yeah. I was, which I is encouraging. Too, yeah. Um, Cause again, like just because you've done something to end up in prison doesn't mean you should live in like a Petri dish for like the worst pandemic we've had in a century. Um, that's not a suitable punishment to fit drug crimes. We don't need to get into war on drugs here, but you know, that's the, well, that's, I I mean, yeah, I'd I'd go even further than that. I mean, I think, yeah, it's easy to, it's even easy to kind of soft pedal a little bit and say like, well, you know, I don't want like innocent people to go to jail accidentally or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, like nonviolent crimes or whatever shouldn't be punished as much. But I mean, I even think like a serial killer doesn't deserve to be, uh, (laughs) you know, like to die of COVID in jail. Right. Yeah. Um, But that's, even as I say that, I kind of want to, I find myself wanting to backpedal a little bit. <laughs> like, well, um, maybe not. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, yeah. Then, and then everybody goes into that other category. Cause I think if you've got this sense that like, I'm, I'm generally decent. Um, or maybe there's even like a slight recognition in this soft Pelagianism. There's a slight recognition that like, okay, I'm not perfect. Like I'm not, I'm not mother Teresa, but I'm, I'm pretty good. Like I'm, I'm decent. Yeah. Sometimes I make some mistakes. And so if there's somebody who, who holds an ideological belief, that's a little bit different than you or fails in a way that you don't like, since I think I'm like, just, just over the edge of good, like I'm pretty good. If someone is in some way I perceive to be worse than me, they're bad. Like they must be bad. Now they must be on the flip side, even if their sins aren't that much worse than than mine since i feel like since i feel like the stuff that i'm good at is is natural and easy 
and someone else fails at that, they must be really bad. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's really funny how like you yourself always kind of become the threshold mm -hmm. uh, for for badness, and which is I don't know may, maybe maybe the promptings of of conscience or the Holy Spirit or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't live. Pride is no good. No one should think of themselves as overly righteous. But yeah, we it, it's the the soft middle is like I am good enough. I'm I am just above the cusp, decent person. Um, yeah, yeah. As as long as I'm in like the the big fat middle of the bell curve and not off on that little you know that that bad tail off to the left. Yeah, okay. that'll that'll do. Um, and, and some of it because because we associate like moral response to like academic and and economic and job response like because we sort of mash everything together so not only are, are good people good people but like smart people are good people and prosperous people are good people are smart people are you know we, we kind of lump them all together um it's almost like the shooting for the middle of the bell curve is how we respond is the backlash to social media world and perceived like you have to do really well. So there's this big movement in some ways, a healthy response to like, like world's okayest dad thing. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not world's best dad. I'm world's okayest dad. And that's fine. And I don't need to beat myself up if like, I'm not perfect, which in some way is good, but sort of, um, we, we were talking pre-recording. Uh, we were talking about the, the, the the movement among especially like former evangelicals of like doubt is cool and a good place to end and deconstruction yeah. is great and it never matters if you actually construct something this sort of like okayest middle of the bell curve ends up being a destination um it's sort of this like yeah it's fine you don't need to everybody should be comfortable with where they are but never expect too much of themselves um it, it's i don't know give up culture as a as an end goal yeah yeah i think like if if that's your model of salvation that like well i'm basically already there mm -hmm. you know um i i yeah and, and maybe this even kind of latches into that like uh caricature of evangelical uh um like conversion model where like okay i said the sinner's prayer and then i can sort of like go right. back to my life you know um but like, yeah, I mean, if, if the victory is that easy or is that like kind of vague, you know, okay, what did I actually gain from this? You know, if, you know, um, like, why would you bother with it? You know, I mean, say, say what you want about Pelagius, but like, at least he knew it was going to be hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, at least he, it, he required something of you. And that's, yeah. I feel like constant tension being at, being at like, a place like Moody Bible Institute, which is sort of squarely in that evangelical Protestantism. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I remember hearing a professor say, like, if someone went forward and genuine at like a Billy Graham crusade, um, and back when they were called crusades still, because yeah, because <laughs> we weren't quite overusing that word yet. Um, like, and they went forward and they and they sort of received Jesus into their heart and did so earnestly. Um, they and then like changed their mind the next day um, and never did anything about it. Like that person goes to heaven. Like that is that person set. 
And, and the professor saying that as sort of a radical doubling down on grace, right? Like this is how God works is sort of, is sort of once, once you're, you're saved, he never lets you go. Um, the problem is, and the reason the professor saying this in sort of a controversial way is we all feel like, well, no, that can't be, it, it can't be that transactional. Um, but I feel like that throws you back into Pelagianism. Like, like, okay, if, if that doesn't work it, or if that seems on its face to be ridiculous, you must have to do something. Um, yeah. Then, then the, the, the famous phrase you hear a lot around theological circles, or at least the ones that I was in is you, when someone says something that has anything to do with like works being a necessary part, you call them a semi-Pelagian. Like that's, <laughs> that's semi-Pelagian, which is the kind of insult you can throw out without having to really prove that they're a full on Pelagian, but to be like, ah, something about that seems fishy. You're a semi-Pelagian. Uh, and it's like, it, you can't defend yourself against it. It's like the, it's, it's, a, it's the trump card you can play on any, on any hand. Um, uh, were, were you called or did you call people that more often? Oh, I don't remember. I probably, knowing me in Bible college, I probably called people semi-Pelagian mm. more than I, I was. <laughs> I squarely went through that very well-tread path of like the neo-reformed certainty um, in my, in my early twenties. That was, that was the, the wheelhouse in which I found myself. Um, but yeah. So is that sort of the, the move in, in, in Protestantism that, that like you notice that Alan pointed out just this move towards like just downplaying and flattening out all the hard edges of original sin so that we don't have to like worry about it too much. Yeah, I think. Huh. I think that is maybe sort of like where the center of gravity moves. Um, because it is like, and, and I think it comes from trying to grapple with like a, a really good question, right? Like if I okay, I get saved. I turn my life over to Jesus. And like, mm -hmm. you know, you have to wake up the next day and, you know, go to work or, you know, and like live your life again. And you feel like, well, you know, nothing has changed. I'm, st you know, like mm -hmm. what, what's different, you know? Um, I, I, I'm kind of just thinking this through right now, but I mean, I, I wonder if, if that um, sort of soft pedaling is is a way around that to say like well you know no you're actually doing fine you mm -hmm. know um i actually think about how alan i always loved i, I was clearly f like formed into my anglicanism by alan when he was catechist at all souls like when i yeah. his book on the on the com book of common prayer is is both about the book itself and sort of about anglicanism as a okay. as a sort of christian path um sort of way to do christianity um, and reading it, I'm like, oh, I agree with all this. I'm like, oh, that's probably because Alan was heavily responsible for a lot of that. Um, but I, I always appreciated how he talked about Anglicanism being sort of, he did the reformed Catholicism thing, but he said holding them in tension um, as a way of saying like, it's not a settled matter. It's like, you're constantly being pulled in both of these directions at once. Um, 
and as we're sort of talking about these responses to like original sin and, and Pelagianism, it, it's like this, this latitudinarian thing is a refusal to hold things in tension. It's a refusal to like try and deal with complex thoughts. It's like, I, that's too hard to try and like hold grace and, and works together at the same time. So I'm just going to say, I'm just going to let go of both of those things and just kind of slide into the middle um, which is like, eh, be nice and you're okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is like, I think if you poke a lot of people who have imbibed the kind of like cultural American Christianity, that's like just in the air, you know, mm-hmm. I think, I think you come up with something sort of like that. Um, I think, I don't know, that's often, that that's definitely the stereotypical um, teaching of like the, the Protestant mainline churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of like great and godly Episcopalians and Methodists yeah. and Presbyterians. You know, I don't mean to like slander those guys, but you know, that that's kind of the stereotype we have of, uh, of what you get at, um, at your local Episcopal church or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think actually there sometimes you, you, and you find this among like Anglicans too and, kids who went to Wheaton is, you know, like there's, um, they kind of fetishize that tension and sort of turn that into, uh, into its mm. own latitudinarianism where you're like, well, we just can't understand any of it. So we're just going <laughs> right. to sit here in the tension and be okay with that, you know? And like, and that also is a way of like, um, not like letting yourself off the hook for not growing. Right. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was really happy to encounter, uh, in Dan Trier's uh, Christian thought class at Wheaton, um, you know, the phrase faith seeks understanding that like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you don't have to sit in the tension with Kierkegaard forever. You can like <laughs> actually learn things and grow, you know, and that's, that's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. When I, I often really value, this is part of what we lose um, as I don't know, Americans, Western society, as, as we lose contact with, um, with the elderly, like, meeting older Mm. saints who you can look at them and say this is someone who has really grown in grace and they often seem to have you see someone on the other side of some of these tensions in these journeys like you see someone who clearly has taken these questions seriously but is like i don't know they're on the other side and has clearly grown in grace and has learned something from it and has something deeper um and they're the kind of people who will like when you're dealing with a difficult situation offer you what sounds like platitudes and from anyone else would sound like trite, Mm. like a trite platitude, but, but you can tell they've like earned the right to say that. Um, Like they've gone through enough stuff to be like, yeah, like let go and let God. But I'm saying that because when I went through everything, it was God who saved me. Like there's something really nice about that, but I feel like in some ways, yeah, you have to earn. You have to earn being trite and, and offer platitudes. You have to like have go through some stuff. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I find that those are the people who, yeah, they, they have actually grown in grace. They have actually found a way to grow in virtue. And you look at them like, oh, okay. Well, I want to try and walk that path instead. Um, yeah. No, yeah, uh, exactly. I'm so happy you brought up like the the platitudes of uh, 
um, of like a life lived in grace. Cause I, uh, I, I wanted to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit. Mm, yeah. Um, so like, I guess, okay. If, if we can say like these, uh, these varieties of Pelagianism, like don't have, you know, ultimately they kind of end in places of despair where either mm-hmm. you're like despairing for yourself or, um, you know, you kind of, uh, in order for you to be good, you have to denigrate those around you, right? You have to, um, mm-hmm. you know, you have to make them fail um, one way or another. And, and I mean, we could dig on this all night probably and dig on like America and, and its culture um, as like yeah. a, a hotbed for this sort of thing. Um, and maybe we can do more of that. But uh, I, I, I want to ask like, okay, so, all right, knowing that, what does original sin itself have to like commend mm-hmm. itself to us? Right. Why, what's good here in this model. And like, I think one of the things is that, yeah, it, it really throws you back on those evangelical roots in the best possible way. And it brings mm-hmm. you back to grace, you know? So like, so the reason I brought up AA is right. Like what's the, I'm, I'm getting out my, uh, my copy of the, the big blue book here, right. You know, what's uh what's step one, of the 12 steps, you, you admit that you're powerless over mm-hmm. alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is, um, I don't know. I, I kind of have this riff about how like AA is like a, a real theological contribution from America in the 20th century. Like, you know, even though yeah. you don't have to be Christian to be an AA and a lot of people aren't. And I think it, you know, it veers away from Orthodox Christianity at points, but that I, and, and I also, I should say, I am not trying to draw, um, uh, too close a parallel between alcoholism and original sin that's not my intention. Like we can, we can find a lot of differences between the two things. And I don't want to make uh, I don't want to make too broad a point here, but I, I do think it's useful to think about the model a little bit mm-hmm. um, to help us think about original sin. Right. You know, so that it's this idea that y- you're not going to be able to, to fix it yourself, that you just simply do not have the capability. It's not like, oh, I'm going to learn some things and then I'll have the the capability to make myself better or whatever. Like, nope, yeah. you are powerless, period, right? And then, of course, what's the what's the next step, right? We, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we turn our lives over to that higher power as we understand it. Um, you know, it's very, very easy to map that onto kind of a... Um, you know, like an evangelical tract almost, right? I mean, you yeah. can see the, the Roman road there. Uh, yeah, and there's something that, you know, we're, we're in the middle of Lent, right? And there, yeah. that, that powerlessness and that recognition of like, nope, I, I actually can't do any of this. Um, it is refreshing in a way. Like there's something yeah. about that that is incredibly freeing because it frees you from the internal shame that you feel about, your inability to change yeah yeah i was just i was just gonna say like it, it frees you from yourself you know right mm-hmm. i mean we are we're our own worst enemy in so many respects um you know there's a saying in aa uh my best thinking got me here you know <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah it, it just kind of allows you to say well all right i i don't want to listen to myself anymore because i know what happens when i do that um 
and kind of primes you for this whole radical shift in how you perceive the world. Um, and I, you know, yeah, so I, I got to hand it to, uh, to the evangelicals. Like when you look at the history of Protestantism, especially like it's, it's the evangelicals who are carrying the torch for original sin and like Mm -hmm. constantly shoving it back in people's faces, you know, for every, every, you know, latitudinarian movement or every kind of like, um, you know, like soft Victorian sort of piety, you know, there's a John Wesley, mm. there's a John Bunyan, there's a, um, there's an Oxford movement. Um, they'd lo- think it was hilarious. I was calling them evangelicals, but you know, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you know, there, there's people like shoving it back in your face and saying, no, you have to deal with this like stain that you're born with. You can't just over, you know, you can't just brush it aside that easily. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that, this is, um, this is a thoroughly Anglican idea too, right? This is baked into, our own liturgy, you know, I, I look at the, um, the collect that we said a couple Sundays ago, um, I think, yeah, Lent two is, uh, you know, it starts off almighty God, you know, that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Um, and then it goes on to implore God to take care of us for ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. defend us, uh, yeah, keep us right. Um, you know, or you think of like the words of the old, uh, general confession, you know, there, there is no health in us. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think without if if you haven't fully faced the reality of sin, that just feels really dour. Like all that, all that there is no health in us stuff, um, or even I mean the prayer of humble access, the like we're not so worthy so much as the oh, yeah. crumbs under our table. Yeah. Um, it it seems like intentionally dour for the sake of being dour, but I think there's something about. Um, really looking at our capability to sort of be better um that that exposes like well no no that's definitely true like i definitely experienced that i definitely know that to be true um i can't white knuckle myself i i couldn't figure out so i ended up with that elizabeth elizabeth brunig quote in the sermon this last week yeah because i was reading um there's a site called christ and pop culture that does some really good sort of pop culture articles and things like that I was reading their summary um, after the close of the the show BoJack Horseman on Netflix, which is okay. which is if you if you haven't seen it, you don't need to. Um, but it is it's a, a sort of surreal animation show in which um, it, it stars an alcoholic horse voiced by Will Arnett, um, who is a, a like he was like a '90s sitcom star, but he's like washed up now and just exists in his wealth. But it is a constant he constantly wonders, is he good? And he's not like, he's a, he's a generally like mean, selfish person who, who persistently seeks out his own interests all the time. And is just constantly reflecting on that. So I wanted to find someone else who had written about it to see what I can pull out of it. Um, but yeah, I, it seems to me like a show like that becoming really popular um, or, or having a, a sort of cult following shows that there's a, there is a sort of not just a theological truth that you have to have special revelation to get, but a broadly understood, like the well of, of sort of soft Pelagianism in the culture is shallow. And at some point, at some point, all of us experienced, like (laughs) we all got tired of hearing we can get through it together, which is why we stopped seeing those commercials a few months into the the pandemic. Cause eventually people were like, stop it. That like, do gooderism and like feel goodism is not gonna 
is not going to get us through this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have pretty good BS radars and Mm -hmm. like they, you know, yeah, they'll, that stuff doesn't sit right, you know? And although, um, that sets you up to really despair, like, uh, like, you know, the kind of the message of the show that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not going to become a good person. Like that also creates an opportunity for like genuine evangelism too. I mean, right. Like that is the moment where you're ready to hear something like I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, um, let's see, how, how are we doing on time here? I'm debating whether to digress or not digress why not okay all right it's, so, it's a podcast we've got nothing else we've we need to get done yeah yeah it's, okay perfect um so you can you can cut all this out if you want to but um i i've been kind of noodling a little bit on um some of the implications of the incarnation mm-hmm. over the last few weeks in, in lent um and i think so backtracking a little bit i think like thinking about that idea of okay you know we're born sinful there is something corrupted about our nature, you know, where um, like the, the Augustinian formula is that like, it is right now, it's not possible for us not to sin. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our situation, right? Um, so that not only does like kind of recognizing that allow you to avail yourself of grace and to see the motion of grace in, in your life and like throw yourself back on God. It also like gives you somewhere to go, right? Like I'm here right now. Um, and I think that's where the hope starts to come in. Right. So um, I brought up the incarnation cause I started thinking about the, the classic like Christological formula. Like if you, if Christ is fully God and fully human, um, maybe what that means is that we are not currently fully human like only Jesus is fully human in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain way. And like, you know, maybe, um, you know, that's what he makes us through his grace. Like that's where we're going. Um, but we're not there yet. I mean, that's kind of what being corrupted means in that mm-hmm. way. Right. You know, we're, we're sick. We're not a hundred percent, you know, our, our, uh, our bar is not up to a hundred percent right now. And yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I've I've always loved that picture that like what Jesus offers is like true humanity is 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 real humanity that because sometimes the, the criticism is that like Christianity as a way of life is is giving you a less than human experience right like you are yeah. by depriving yourself of things um, by by you know by following the the you shall nots you are having a less than experience and in some ways what was packaged and sold what I internalized, whether or not it was intentionally taught to me was like, yeah, but you do that for the payout. Like you do it because you're going to get heaven, which is going to be more fun, which is going to be more fun than like sex, drugs and rock and roll. So it's okay to do that now. But, but this idea that actually, um, like John three sixteen isn't like, so that they may have eternal life after they die. It's that so that whoever believes in me might, have everlasting life, which presumably starts when you believe in Jesus. Like he's offering yeah. you a, a more human way to live now, um, a more real way to live now. Um, and yeah, that, then if, if he is fully human, we are aspiring to be more fully human in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, also like we shouldn't kid ourselves about where that leads. Right. Um, I, I brought up, I mentioned, Herbert McCabe earlier in the, in the podcast, um, 
he's a, a great, great um, Dominican priest um, mm-hmm. who, who died in, I think, 2001. Um, so relatively recent. Um, but he, he's got this little bit about, about the crucifixion where he says, like, Jesus just died. Um, you know, you don't need an elaborate theory of atonement. Um, and you, can, you certainly don't need the kind of, like, sophomoric atheist uh, idea of, like, divine child abuse or something right, that you hear right. thrown around sometimes, you know, um, like he says, Jesus just died of being human, you know, like that hmm. is just what happens to a fully human person in this inhuman world, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, you know, guess what? Like when we start becoming more like Christ, like, you know, the world is not going to see how, you know, Christians love each other and say, Oh, this is so wonderful. Let me drop everything and join them. You know, the world is going to reach for its gun more likely mm-hmm. than not. Um, you know, and so like it, and that, and he goes on to say that like, that just like shows up what the condition of original sin is, right. That yeah. that's what it means to live in a world full of sin. Yeah. I mean, and as we're talking, you know, the, it, while it feels initially like a tough sell to say, why is original sin hopeful? It seems hopeful maybe because all of us are a little bit cynical and we know that, that anything less than original sin is an insufficient model from which to understand how hellish the world can actually be and so original sin allows us to like more honestly diagnose like it's a more honest diagnosis yeah uh, that then helps you better understand what the real problem is um and we're not kidding ourselves which allows us to receive grace more fully yeah exactly and then the really beautiful thing about that too is like once once we get into that rhythm and we we start seeing ourselves as like wholly dependent on grace on the, on the higher power, which is Christ. Mm. That's going to, you know, bring us out of our powerless state. Um, it actually does bring us together. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, original sin is this great like leveling thing. And over and over again, the people who are critical of it, you find are like the great and powerful who don't want anything to do with that. So there's a really, um, uh, Jacobs in his, um, uh, his book on original sin quotes this really hilarious letter um, that was written by the Duchess of Buckingham um, about the preaching of uh, George Whitefield, who was one of the kind of leaders of the great awakening in the 18th century, right? Like early, early uh, evangelical. Um, So she says, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting like um you know uh she says to her friend who is trying to get her to go to one of these revivals you know i cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding right you know i mean original sin is at variance with high rank and good breeding and it's yeah. like disgusting uh to somebody who believes that they have been born into you know where they are and deserve it mm-hmm. um you know that's that's really offensive to hear right um and you can, sorry, I'll hit one more quote. Um, and that, that same Whitfield who so offended the, the Duchess, um, he writes about going and preaching to some coal miners. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that, you know, at first they, it, it didn't go well, but gradually like more and more of them come and listen to him. And he says, having no righteousness of their own to renounce. They were glad to hear of a Jesus who was a friend to publicans, to tax collectors, and came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Um, and this beautiful image, the first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully ran down their, their mm. cheeks. They came out of the coal pits. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he's exaggerating for effect or not, but like that, um, the contrast between the, the minor and the duchess is like one that's, uh, that's kind of stuck with me, you know, and I, I, I know who I'd rather line up with on, on the day. Yeah. Of uh, yeah. It, it makes me think of, um, I mean, in, in the same way, when, when D.L. Moody starts preaching, he's, he just does this Christian workers movement and his stuff is mm -hmm. all born out of like, he just wants to hang out with regular people and, and preach to them. I mean, if Moody Bible Institute is right next to, um, like the YMCA. And in fact, it, before they had dorms, Moody students would often like live at the Y, like the, oh. the apartments, like not the, we're not talking like the gym, the YMCA. It's like the actual like place where you would, where you need to go if you're short on the dough. Is that the yeah, yeah. people line that the, uh, <laughs> you can stay there? Something, um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> a, a whole dance about like a place you can live if you don't have a lot of money. That's a, is that remarkable? Yeah. That, that's an interesting piece on its own. Um, right. Like that's his whole movement. And he often like for financing reasons sort of has to start preaching to like the suburbs, but like where he wants to go is where people who don't have, who don't have this idea of what they should be and have less of a sense of ought and are sort of ripe and ready to hear the gospel as it's preached. And I, I suspect if you look at a lot of revival movements, that's where it is. It's the people who don't come in with presumption and they're, they don't have any sense of like, I am better than needing that. Um, and in, yeah. in a sense, they have a much more honest understanding of the world. Yeah. And once you start really kind of meditating on original sin, I mean, you realize that that is regardless of your status or wealth in this world, like you, you are in exactly the same place. Mm -hmm. as them. Um, which is kind of interesting because, um, you know, if we think about Matthew 25, that sort of, um, you know, that puts you in the same position as Christ then as well. You know, once you start mm -hmm. seeing yourself, uh, you know, on the same footing, um, as everybody, as, as the guilty, as the imprisoned, as the poor, um, right. Uh, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It, it's a great agent of solidarity, I think, to, to think about it. Um, which is it's probably reading too much into into paul and romans 5 but like i think you know his his emphasis on like okay we're all guilty of adam's sins and came into the world through adam you know like he's mm -hmm. he's hinting at this way that we are in fact all like deeply connected to each other um mm -hmm. you know that god has made us that way you know that like it, almost as if the sin um the sin is like taking a path that already existed between all of us. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, stopping this is like totally insane or, or heretical to say, but like, you know, I, I'm one, you know, the way that he then pivots to, you know, saying, and then like through Christ righteousness comes into the world. Um, it doesn't work the same way as original sin. You know, we're not universalists, mm -hmm. but, um, but I think that that's, that's what the church is almost that like, you know, that the way that we are all bound together in the body of Christ is this sort of like inversion of the way that original sin binds us all together um, or like fulfillment yeah. of that, the, the promise that that hints at almost. And, and yeah. And I, and I, I love also, 
I mean, we're talking earlier, like the more real, like it's also the more real version of that. Like Jesus is the more real Adam. Yes. It's the, the truer Adam. Um, yeah. Yeah. For further up and further in the, the, yeah. the real Narnia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a hopeful picture. <laughs> okay. I'm glad we got there. Yeah. We got there in the end anyways. So we, we probably are, are long on time here, but, um, but I want to make sure what else, uh, any other things about original sin that you feel like helpful that we should reflect on here? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, this is a lot to, to think about. And I really love this final picture of like the, the church as this sort of group of solidarity, the, these people who are together, who, um, who, yeah, are able to, to be in solidarity with original sin. I'm talking and typing because I want to look up the collect for, um, I want to look up the, the collect for, for Lent too, so I can close with that. So if, if, okay. if I was, if I was smart, I would have done this earlier, but I found <laughs> it now. So okay. here, let me, let me pray and we'll, we'll close. Sounds good. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.